Welcome to the Culture of Leadership. We have conversations that help you develop and become a more confident leader. Are you a new leader or aspiring to become one? If so, you won't want to miss this episode. Today I'm speaking with Nina Sunday, the founder of Brainpower Training, podcast host of Manage Self, Lead Others, and a certified speaking professional. Nina's an experienced leader and has made a fair share of rookie mistakes. In this conversation, we'll explore the common missteps new leaders make and how to avoid them. From not understanding the big picture of your job to avoiding performance coaching. Nina shares her personal insights and offers valuable tips on how to build a thriving culture, develop your people, and ultimately drive results. If you want to become a more confident leader and build a high-performing team, stay tuned. This is the Culture of Leadership podcast. I'm Brendan Rogers. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Nina. What's inspired you to pursue leadership? Well, if I look back to before I started my business, I was working at ABC television and in other roles, and I was only ever hired to do the job I was hired to do. No one ever was inspired to build my capability or to set up uh, some thoughts around career progression within the organization. So when one door shut in terms of me actually finding a pathway to be promoted within a large organization, I kind of got discouraged. And actually, I had lots of ideas for self-employment, so that's what I did. And it was the right thing for me, of course. But because in the past it was the blind leading the blind when it comes to leadership, people were just, this is your job and this is what you do, and I didn't have any boss that I could look back and say, they built my capability, they helped me see a future, they helped me see my own progress. I was left to my own devices with that. But of course, We're talking about 30 years ago when leadership wasn't the topic of conversation that it is today. So what inspired me? I was just like all the other leaders when I started growing my team and hiring salespeople and event coordinators and the business got into seven figures at one point. I was focused on results and what I didn't realize is that I also needed to be focused on culture and in fact it was Ultimately, it was culture that kind of was the the, the thorn in our side or, or, or shooting us in the foot. People would be enthusiastic at the start, then they would plateau, and then they would there would be a downward spiral and they'd either leave or, the, or I'd want them to leave because they were so negative. And I thought culture was really just about socializing and making sure we had a few little events outside. When I went under the surface and started doing my own reading and also my own observations and reflection, I realized just one mistake at a time, I started correcting them. And then, of course, as I corrected my mistakes and got better at leading a team and got more motivated team members as a result, I started realizing that ultimately, if you focus on culture, the results look after themselves. Yeah, it's a great point. Was there something in particular that you did in your own journey that helped you, like an action that you took to start to help that self-development in the leadership space? Well, I started looking at my own story and I identified that I had a like my first scar, if you like, in in the working world. I was still at university. 
I had done a speed reading course and then was employed by them to both do the promotional presentations and to also do the training. And so I was working behind the scenes and I was uh, employed. Oh, they, they sent me to go to this little small town to do the, the one hour presentation that they advertised on radio and television. And suddenly we were swamped with people because it was a little town and was not much else on. It wasn't the big city of Brisbane where I, where I had been living. And so I was really proud of the fact that in, you know, in the last minute, myself and the assistant, we pulled out some chairs and we got everybody settled and I did the presentation and I got the uh, enrollments. And then I walked into the office next day and the boss had a sour look on his face and said, sit down. You lost me money. And I'm going, I've just had the most incredible thing where I had to rise to the occasion and speak to 80 people and I'd never done that before. We did the event. Nothing bad happened. And I, I think I just looked at him quizzically and he repeated it. You lost me money. What he was pointing out was, and that's what he said, you should have put a full house uh, sign on the door the minute it got all the seats were full and there were no more seats. You can't have standing room only. You lost me money. I was swamped by his negativity and his lack of appreciation. And I'm 19 years old for Pete's sake. I'm not a full time seasoned sales professional that would happen to know that that's the standard operating procedure. It was all in his head. I'm expected to be a mind reader. Anyway, I walked out of there. A week later, I went, you know what? If that's business, I want nothing of it. And I did not accept any more bookings from that company ever again. Now, I only realized recently that in the early days of being a manager, I really avoided performance coaching. When somebody did behavior that was habitual that annoyed me or that was interrupting other people, I would just tut tut to myself and say nothing because I now realize I put two and two together. I think I thought that if I pulled people up and said this, this behavior is not good enough, that they would just quit and leave on the spot. And I didn't want that to happen. But really, when I bo- it, I, it boiled down, I didn't know exactly what to say. So suddenly, I think I must have read a book or list, read an article, and suddenly I started reading things like, here's what to say when you want to coach poor performance. And I went, oh, I might try that, and it works. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my long-winded answer to your question, Brendan. Look, it's a good answer, a great example, and thankfully for for you and the clients that you've worked with and created so much value f- f- with over the time that you had a level of resilience and and you stuck with it. Uh, and you've obviously been an, a strong, independent woman for some time, Nina, I have to say. Oh, well, thank you and I have. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Nina, let's, let's dive in because you've got some street cred. You've just shared some of that about these rookie mistakes that new leaders may make. So we're going to unpack these five from your perspective today and your experiences. So what's this first one that you believe that rookie mistake that new leaders make? I believe it's not understanding the big picture view of your job, which is to build the capability of your people. Because, see, I was in a small business, and even if you're in a large organization that's a huge bureaucracy or government, it's your job as a manager to develop the career and the credibility and professionalism of the people who are in your team. So if you just focus on results and strategy, culture is there anyway. So 
if you're not focusing on culture, it will create its own either positive culture or negative culture. So I think in, in the past when I was a manager, I had to sort of prove that I had all the answers. I had to prove that, you know, that I was making sure we had, we had financial goals and achievement goals and that people were matching up to it. But your team is, may only be with you temporarily. And any employer, any manager has a duty to develop the people under them so that when they do go for another job, whether it be a promotion within the organization or another company, you've been developing them so that they will be in the marketplace, uh, someone that an employer wants to hire. So you do have that duty of care to someone's career progression to actually develop them, give them training or give them that sense of progress and actually help them identify here's where you were when you started, here's what you're doing now, can you see how well you are progressing in your role? And it's not for you to then say, and then when you, you can use this to apply for another job. Of course, you don't want to, you want to keep them with you as long as you can. But I've had discussions with other business owners as well, and they've said things to me like, yes, I used to find that people only stayed with me because we were a small business with not, not proper management hierarchy. There was really nowhere to people to progress to. They would only stay about one or two years. But when I started pointing out how they were progressing with their own skill set within the role, they tended to stay longer. So you've got this responsibility to help people identify how they are personally progressing, as well as giving them a big picture view of the contribution, their role, and also the organization is making for want of a better term, contributing to a better world. So it's all about create. Now these days we're talking about creating meaning, purpose, and and highlighting progress as a way to help build the capability of the people that you're working with and that report to you. What do you see on the ground when the leader has and continues to live this mistake of not building capability? What does the organisation, the team? even the leader look like in action when they're living this mistake, they're not building capability? In order to answer this question, there's there's one little extra bit I want to add. And I found out, this was about 20 years ago, we had, I got a grant, government grant to do a business plan and we had the business planner come in and he did a three, what we call a 360 degree feedback. And for the first time, people could one-on-one tell him what they he asked, had questions, tell him what they thought about working for brain power training. And then he came back and said, well, people haven't told you this, but this is what they've told me. What I realized is that I was not doing one-on-ones with people. And so they weren't, didn't have the channel of communication to say, Nina, I'm not happy with this. The only time we had team discussions was as a team, as a group. No one's going to bring up what is their gripe if they have one in front of the team. But you could say, well, they could ask for a meeting, but it's not really about them having to ask for a meeting. If that's not part of the culture, if you're not making one-on-ones part of the regular process of being working with your team members, it's, it's very difficult for them to ask for that because otherwise it might turn into that horror of horror performance appraisal, annual performance appraisal, where managers save up all the things they don't like and then swamp 
people with it at the end of the year or end of six months. We're talking about regular one-on-ones about once every month, and it only has to be for about 20 minutes. And what I'm learning now is the key question is, are there any roadblocks for you to get your job done? How can I help you? And it's really about you helping them. So if they feel like, if your team members feel like you've got their back, that you will help them clear the path to them achieving their goals, well, that creates loyalty. It creates that connection, rapport, and people are less likely to do what we call triangles, which is talk behind your back negatively about you. And that is a killer. We don't want any triangles. We don't want any politics. No, you're absolutely right. So is your one-on-ones or not having one-on-ones the rookie mistake number two? What I've evolved it into, and it kind of was something I just, look, sometimes things just pop into my head. It's not that I read about it or, but I think about what would I want people to do for me or what did people not do for me that I wished they had? I remember I had this, um, a really good source of talent in a business, students in their gap year between grade 12 and university. They're very happy to work four days a week. You are, you, you know, they're not expensive. And yet they'll go on to be a doctor, a lawyer. Seriously, they have doctor, lawyer, policymaker, work in parliament, advisor to parliament. So you're getting the cream for about 12 months while they're still fairly junior. I remember on one occasion, I just had a one-on-one meeting with one and we had the flip chart up and we said, let's identify all the tasks that you do. And I had it in two columns and said, which are the ones that you like doing? Which are the ones that you think, hmm, I, I do it, but I, they're not really my preference. And I was a little surprised at the answer. How can I know what people prefer or not prefer? And it was so easy for me to say, you know, I have a feeling we've got Katrina, we've got Mary. I have a feeling I could volunteer and see if they, you know, ask them to volunteer and see if they would like to do that task. And that's exactly what happened. We did a little bit of a job rotation because that's the other thing. If you can rotate roles so that people get a broad experience. With time management, one of the questions is to delegate. Can you delegate this task? Who could you delegate to? Now, one of the tasks I used to hoard for myself was doing the financial confirmation for any booking that we had that was of any of any caliber. And I asked that question, could you delegate this? Well, I suppose yes. Who could you delegate to? And sitting diagonally opposite me in the open plan office was a woman that was just doing telephone follow-ups. And I went, well, she used to work for Qantas. Why don't I see if she wants to do the financial confirmations? She said, yes, I did a lot of admin in my other role. And not only that, we had a thing called four eyes control, which is two sets of eyes. She would prepare it. I would check it. My time was so saved. It was unbelievable. And we've done four eyes control ever since. I've delegated that task ever since. Because if you make a mistake, you've got to live with it. It can cost you hundreds of dollars. But honestly, my time is more valuable than sitting there doing financial confirmations. (laughs) Yeah. So it sounds like the actually making time to do those one-on-ones, and you said it could just be 20 minutes, but there's this this real opportunity to focus on the individual and to really make a connection, get to know them a little bit more in their skill set so you can actually get the best out of them, which links back to the first one around building capability. Yeah. One of the things I always do with my people is is get them to do some sort of a psychometric assessment, and there's a lot of free ones on the net. 
I really love the DISC profile. It, it isn't to label people or to box them in. It's just to get an understanding of it's a cluster of behaviors that has a pattern that gives you some insight into not only how people operate, it'll tell you how they will execute a task if you give it to them. So for example, I do like DISC. I've used Myers-Briggs. I've used Herman brain dominance instrument, team management systems. There's a whole stack of them. Any new one comes along, I give it a go. (laughs) Uh, There's the five-factor one that academics particularly like, OCEAN, O-C-E-A-N. But I remember once I gave it what in in DISC they have D-I-S-C, C C is for conscientiousness or compliance. I gave a report to a high C to do and I thought it would take a day. I kept saying, how's that going? Oh, no, not not done yet, not done yet. Because I'm not a micromanager, and that's a mistake of some managers, I didn't say, well, show me what you're doing. I just went, you know, I was pretty busy with whatever I was doing. I just assumed, oh, well, she's she's an efficient, capable person. I'm sure, you know, she's working it out. It took four days, and I got a thesis that would have probably passed any master's degree. And all I wanted to know was this particular initiative where we put, put videos and books into bookstores around Australia didn't make a profit or was it worthwhile? So I probably should have given that task to someone that was a high D, direct or dominance, that looks for the shortcuts and goes, what's the bottom line? Was it profitable? But you know what it was? I didn't probably give her enough direction. So you see, you can be a laissez-faire manager where you say, just do it. Or you can be a very directive manager where you micromanage, which actually can annoy some or most people. I was probably more on the laissez-faire, this is the this is the goal. You you get get to it any way you like. But sometimes it's good to check in. <laughs> check how they're doing it. But also if I'd have been thinking about the psychometric result that she was a very high C, that probably she was going to give me more detail than I needed. So maybe I needed to step in earlier. But no one's perfect and we're learning all the time. <laughs> we absolutely are as well. The thing that pops in my head, because I know you mentioned one-on-ones sort of monthly, but even the potential to have those weekly. I know leaders are very busy and things like that, but if you're only talking 15 to 20 minutes, that could potentially save a hell of a lot of time down the track. I look back to the early days, even before we had our first website, one of the salespeople came up and said, oh, the uh, the local chamber of commerce has a, pa- a web page, you could get on the internet. <laughs> and at the time it was like, we're talking the year 2000, right? It was still early days of the internet and people didn't, you didn't, it wasn't necessary to have a web presence, although really it probably was. But I just, instead of inviting that person to have a conversation or inviting that person to bring it to the team and let's talk about it, I kind of went, oh no, we're not going to do that right now. I closed down innovation too quickly and just off the side. I wouldn't even be leading from the front when I did it. I'd be leading from the side. By that, I mean, if you're going to make a decision, if someone's going to come to you with a suggested innovation that has has legs, there was nothing wrong with that suggestion. Maybe the, to get on the net was a good thing. Maybe it wasn't to actually be involved with that particular pathway. Maybe someone else could come up with a different pathway. It's about inviting people to share their ideas and using that one idea to springboard to an even better idea. Because I have this saying, always look for the second right answer. So 
just because one suggestion isn't perfect that you want to take action with, just stop, take a moment, take a breath to actually consider that idea and to show that individual that you value them making a contribution. Because the other frame that you want to give people that work in your in your business or in your organization is they're not there just to do the job you've hired them to do. They're there to also share their thoughts on how they can continuously improve the role they're doing. Constant reinvention is important. And this whole principle of Kaizen, which comes out of the Toyota way, which is the Japanese principle of change is good. You'll have a a positive workplace culture with energy and vitality if you're encouraging innovation and suggestions for improvement. So that's what I've learned is to not close down ideas because in the early days, I thought, well, I'm the manager and I have to be the source of all knowledge. I have to be the one that solves the problems. I don't think it was ego so much as I have to prove I've got the credibility to be in this role, to have people that I've hired, that I'm leading. I now have developed so much self-assurance that I don't need to prove it. I can help the people that work with me to shine and I'm happy to step back and really give them credit because we all progress if everybody is shining and feeling like they're progressing. I tend to think, because my own experience has been very similar in that when you've been gifted the opportunity to lead people and to serve people, that it's almost an expectation that came with it, granted maybe decades ago, but probably still around today to some extent, that you know, you prove yourself. And how do you prove yourself? Well, the best way you know how is that you're, you're taking on more technical competence and you're, you're covering things and, and you can sort of do everything. So I, I hear what you're saying. And what I love in the example you've sh- or the examples you've shared is again going back to our first two rookie mistakes: this not building capability and one-on-ones. All these things you're talking about. If you're focused on building capability and if you're taking the time for one-on-ones and having the right conversations around that, all these things start to play out, don't they? Absolutely. My research has un- uncovered some interesting research by the the Google company called Project Oxygen, where their people lad actually lab, I should say, where their people lab identified the eight good behaviors of a manager. And that's informed me. I think I came across that in 2015. And that's informed how I work with my people. And interestingly, out of the eight good behaviors, number eight in order of priority is having the technical competence to guide people on the technical aspects of the team. Really high up there on the list is the ability to help with career progression the ability to understand a little bit more about what's going on in people's lives. And there was a lovely book that I read, oh, this is about 20 years ago now, by a Brisbane dentist called Dr. Paddy Lund called The Happiness-Centered Business. And there was one little suggestion in that book that I took on board and it stayed with us ever since. It was the idea of having a group morning tea. And I decided to bring that in because before that, People would just go up and get their own coffee or tea and take it back to their desk and that was it. People would just do the, you know, here's the kitchenette, get it, go back. So we decided that about three days a week at about 11 o'clock, not on the dot because it depends what we're all doing, but about 11 o'clock we'd go and get our tea or coffee or beverage, whatever, Coca-Cola, and just sit down together for 15 minutes. 
And honestly, that's where I found out the little things that were happening in people's lives. You know, the, the family that have parents that are ill or the, or the family that have children who are, you know, having to go through exams at school or whatever the, or they're having a holiday. So the good things and, and the, uh, the challenges. So I found that that part of culture not only was taken care of, I started enjoying my team more than ever. In fact, they became my friends at work. And I really value the fact that we created this morning tea culture that really made a difference. Now, having said that, obviously, as the manager, I have to make sure it doesn't become half an hour. So what I would do is I would just mostly often say, we'd have meetings, but often I'd say, oh, I'd pick the right moment, but it'd be about 15 minutes. I'd say, mini meeting. And we just spend five minutes talking about something to do with the business. And then, of course, that was the, the cue for everybody to go back to their place. Look, when I was 12 and worked at my mother's office, which was the old B, uh, BOC gases, we used to actually walk down to the canteen and they had free tea and coffee and walk all the way back. I'm sure it took half, half an hour. So in the old days, there was the camaraderie of morning tea. But somehow people now just work at their desk over lunch, don't have tea and coffee together, and often we solve problems. One phrase is around the water cooler. We don't really have water coolers so much anymore, but this informal conversation that you can have with colleagues over a tea or or maybe a lunch, you know, just eating your lunch together, can really have productivity benefits. So that's one thing that I took on board and I'm really glad I did. And I guess there weren't too many smartphones around that time ago as well to take our time. But let's, let's not go into that, hey? <laughs> well, no, no, there is something I do want to say about that, Brendan, because I noticed that, you know, with the uni students that might be working part-time, which I, I really favour that particular source of talent, and uni students all can work part-time. One new one, we had morning tea, and he he was sitting at our morning tea, we're all chatting, looking at his phone. But then I had a one-on-one with him and said, I just want you to understand the purpose of morning tea. You can check your phone anytime you like throughout the day, but morning tea is an opportunity for all the team members to chat together. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind, please, checking your phone at other times and being involved in the conversation. From then on, he was part of the conversation. In fact, in my book, Workplace Wisdom, I've called it fubbing, which is phone snubbing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when people sit, where people are, other people are having conversation, they sit glued to their phone. It's about there's a time for conversation and there's another time for checking your phone. That's two different times. Fubbing, I love it. And also a fantastic example from you as a leader in just taking him aside, having a respectful conversation and setting an expectation. And then he's able to meet that expectation without too many dramas at all by the sounds of it. Oh, yes, because I didn't make him lose face by saying it in front of everybody else. Oh, you know, get off your phone. (laughs) That would only create resentment. So I've kind of learned for people not to lose face that, you know, if you have any kind of feedback, do it, do it one-on-one and then they understand. Yeah, great example. Nina, let's get into our third rookie mistake because we've spoken, number one, building capability, number two, not having or not building capability, not having one-on-ones. What's number three on your list? It's actually getting good at identifying the best language to use. This is when you want to pull up poor behavior because, look, I used to be a bit of an avoidant manager and 
what would happen is, look, one example was uh, there was a team member. It, she'd been there three years, and I noticed that we had separate little offices. There was an open plan plus my little office. And I would come out of my office, and she would spring back into her chair because she had been talking to the person next to her, which means she was interrupting herself and the other person. But it wasn't that it happened once. It was habitual. It was happening all the time. But I didn't know. We're talking, we're talking nearly two decades ago. I didn't know how to bring it up because I went, oh, it's so petty. I can't tell people not to talk at work. But what I can do is really have a conversation and just say, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I notice that sometimes when I come out of the office, you seem to react in a way that looks a little bit guilty to me. Are you, do you feel a little bit guilty? I mean, I could have had that conversation like that. I didn't have to come down like a ton of bricks and, and be accusatory and blaming. I could have just said, I, oh, this is something I just noticed. It's called social sensitivity, Brendan. It's like, I've noticed this behavior. And I'm just wondering about it because if you're feeling guilty, why would you be feeling guilty? And that way, it's not me accusing, it's me coming in with seeking to understand. It's asking questions to understand. The other good thing it's doing is using poor behavior. Well, it's perhaps it was a mistake on that person's part uh, is to, to react in a way that looked like she was guilty. But, you know, because I didn't have that conversation and I read this book by that I'm, I'm going to recommend, Eli Goldratt, he's now passed on, but he is a, an absolute organizational management genius. He started life as a physicist. He wrote The Goal. I really recommend this to everybody. It's his, his theory of constraints is taught in all the MBA management schools around the world. I read the, his little book called The Choice and it said any disharmony, any disharmony, will reduce your profitability. And so what I did, the grand plan was I restructured the roles in the office and informed this person there was no such, that role that they were employed for doesn't exist anymore. So in fact, I moved them out of the business. I didn't have to lose a good person. I could have handled it differently. Yes, occasionally you have to ask people to leave. Yes, you do. And yes, you do have to restructure. But really, when I look at the core, I could have handled it differently. People do leave of their own volition. They do find other jobs. Let that be the way that they leave the business rather than you having to say, there is no role for you anymore. I look back, I wasn't perfect, but hopefully my reflection has enabled me to find better ways to move forward in the future. Nina, are you saying that you decided, and again, many moons ago, but you decided to take a level of I guess a, a high level of dealing with it, I move them out of the organization as opposed to raising what may be a little irritation. It had been going on for months, but I hadn't found a voice. I had to find my own voice. I didn't then, but I have subsequently because of, over time I read, I maybe go to workshops, I listen now to podcasts. You cut, you look, reflect back. A good manager will reflect on their behavior and the reactions of the people that they're working with and come to some conclusions and some resolutions that from now on, I won't do that. I'll try this and just try new things, new ways of interacting with people. I must admit 
that particular restructure meant that I brought in the role of interns. That actually was a really good thing for my business. So it wasn't a complete mistake. And it is good to constantly evolve. And perhaps the reason for us restructuring the business didn't have to be that reason, but it was. But honestly, it wasn't in the big scheme of things. It enabled us to move forward with what I call interns are people that uni students that come in for maybe 13 days or 30 days, depending on, well, sometimes I'm actually now working with a university locally and they have a 13 day or 100 hour internship. I'm now one of the recognized mentors. That has evolved after the last 10 years. I know we had one intern when I launched my very first book on how to study a memory. I actually didn't guide her at all. We just did a big meeting at the start. We said, we want all these social media posts. We want all this. We want all that. I've still got a photo of all the post-it notes that we did. And she just came in and really just did her own thing uh, until the end of the, of the internship and the end of the promotional period. But that person then went on through a theory, series of um, career steps to become the social media manager for PricewaterhouseCoopers. So I've seen some wonderful progression by bringing in into the business one day a week interns for whatever is the duration. And sometimes they're paid and sometimes they're unpaid, but you do have a responsibility for them to one, to grow them in terms of their career, but also to give them the, the ability to have a creative project where they can progress their own skills. And I don't really meddle. I, I, uh, I liaise, but I don't micromanage. Yeah. And I guess, again, linking back to the mistakes that new leaders or not even new leaders can make, what I'm getting, what I think I'm hearing is that there can be little things that people do, which can be a bit of an annoyance and you know not aligned with what's the behavioral expectation of the organization, that having the courage to just have the conversation when it is small so that things don't get out of hand. Am I right in saying that? Yes. And uh, what springs to mind, Brendan, is one of the shifts in my own awareness happened when I realized that I was not leading from the front, I was leading from the side. The, the trigger for that was years ago, 15 years ago, on television was a, on cable TV, was a program called Shalom in the Home with Rabbi Sh- Shmuley. And it's so long ago, I don't know if people remember it, but what it was, it was this particular rabbi would park his caravan at the invitation of the people of the family that was requesting their in, his intervention, park his caravan next to the, in, in the driveway of their house, install closed circuit TV and watch in real time the interactions of the family, the parents and the children with each other. And this one particular example, uh, the woman was fishing for something in the fridge. And then while she still got her arm inside this huge fridge looking for something, turned her head to her teenage son and said, I notice you haven't emptied the dishwasher. Can you hurry up and do that for us, please? And it was just this, you know, irritated, irritated instruction. And of course, he was kind of irritated. And when Rabbi Shmuley sort of pointed out, if you have, an instruction to give your son and your fishing in the fridge, close the fridge door, invite him to sit down, have a conversation with him, find out is there any roadblock to him not <laughs> emptying the dishwasher and in a calm and courteous way, remind him 
that that's the role, that's the job that he's agreed to do, and it needs to be done in a timely way. So we can, once it's empty, then we can start putting in the fresh new new dishes that need to be done. And just giving him the reason behind why it needs to be done promptly. But he said, what you were doing, you were leading from the side, you were not leading from the front. And that to me was like, whoa, that was a big lesson to me. You know, I'd come out of my little open plan, no, open into the open plan from my little office that had glass doors, just how it was set up. And I'd be standing by the kettle and I'd be giving instructions at the kettle. I'm going, Nina, what are you doing? I look back and I go, oh, that's terrible. Well, now I know it's terrible. At least I don't have to do it anymore. (laughs) I do chuckle at this, Nina, because I'm thinking about my own actions. Do you ever find yourself maybe being more correct around leading from the front with in your work environment and with your clients as opposed to your personal environment? Because I know I do. I think I'd lead from the side too much in my personal environment. Well, if you're talking about your spouse, well, I didn't have children. And children, and I did, although and I, I have adult have children. <laughs> and I live alone these days and I've only got a cat. So <laughs> I haven't got the opportunity to try it out, but I didn't have much luck with my spouse. So... <laughs> In terms of leading from the front or the side. <laughs> All right. But hence, I'm, we're I'm not together anymore. You might to want to edit person. that one out. <laughs> oh, classic, classic. Nina, let's, let's, now's a good time to go into our fourth rookie mistake, eh? What's the, what's the fourth one in your experience? Well, I think I've, I've been mentioning heaps of them. I think there's a <laughs> – let me see. Okay. Ah, oh, yes. These are all the these trigger moments that came to me. I remember seeing a pattern of behavior, and this was often with salespeople, where they'd come on board. Of course, you interview them, and so they sort of promise you the world. You're paying. With full-time salespeople, you pay big bucks, and there's commission involved. So they'll promise the world. And also, I've even paid um, recruitment companies to, to place a salesperson. And they, the, the recruitment company comes with big promises. So you, you assume, well, you've pa- you're paying a good wage and all of that. They're all very enthusiastic in the beginning. And then you kind of just, in order to not micromanage, so there's a little bit of fear here. My fear, and this is the avoidant manager streak that I'm fixing, in order to not come across as micromanaging or disapproving or accusatory, I would kind of let people just do their job. But what I would discover is in the beginning, they would treat me with respect and it's like I, you know, I was hiring them, so I was their boss. That it would start to plateau and the dynamic would start to shift, probably because I wasn't leading from the front or doing one-on-ones. The dynamic would start to shift. They would start to be the tail wagging the dog. They would start to tell me how things should happen but not in a way that was respectful or courteous. And then then the relationship would go downhill and either they would leave or eventually they would leave, right? But it wouldn't be amicable. It would be because it's just not good here anymore. Not necessarily me asking them to leave. They would just leave. But I read Charles Handy's The The Empty Raincoat. He talked about the sigmoid curve, which was in any progress cycle. If you think of a plant that comes up as a as a bud, it creates the flower and then the flower dies. If you think of all people working in a role, in the beginning, let's say it's a one uh, a three-year cycle. In the first year, they're excited. In the second year, they're doing the job. But in the third year, 
unless you start a second curve, it will be a downward spiral until until the finish. And that's when I started to see the pattern is I was not creating the second curve. Now, how do you create a second curve? It's like creating a new campaign. Say it was a salesperson. Instead of doing the same old, same old, you find a way for them to do something new that requires them to maybe start afresh or learn afresh that is actually enhancing their capability. It becomes this, you know, positive cycle then as opposed to people just getting bored. In our biggest iteration, we only had, we had 10 full-time staff. So that's a medium-sized business. I know if you're a large business with 50 or 5,000 people, there's more pathways to people, to promoting people and uh, rotating people through roles. But even in a small business, surely there's a way you can think about how can I make this job feel new again for this person, which is also building their capability, but also you're not taking their skills for granted. Well, I think also making sure you praise them. I probably probably could learn to praise people more frequently. Yeah, I think we can all take that on board, the praising people. Once again, I just want to clarify though, if my understanding is correct, it's you mentioned the building capability back to one, but it's almost like it's a level of progression within their role. So new challenge for them to really get their teeth into, which can help with their career progression. Career progression doesn't mean that you need to move on to your next role or your career, but within that role, you're growing and developing. That's another form of progression. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Because I I look back to, there was a point of which we, when, when, this is before, uh, uh, when bookstores were still all over the country, we came up with a campaign to the books that I had published and also some uh, training videos. We created a campaign to put all these DVDs in all the bookstores, which was quite successful. And the, and also it tied in with, um, bookmarks that had a discount to get people to our public programs in speed reading. So it was a whole campaign, but I didn't take the full-time salesperson who was doing our B2B sales off that and get that person to do that new campaign, I hired a brand new person. Thinking back now, I would have thought, well, why don't invite, like the person has a choice. I didn't give them the choice. I just went, oh, well, we have to find a new person because I want someone to do the B2B. Well, I could have thought more uh, with more innovation and go, well, in order to retain this person in the business, why don't I offer them a whole new campaign that will serve the business and then I, I'll just recruit someone to replace them so, in fact, they feel like they've made a promotion and a progression. I look back now and I was blinkered in terms of, oh, we've got a new campaign so we have to get a new person. No, who in the business might see that as a plus, as a sense of uh, progression? And then you're keeping them for longer. I know I've had my support people, my executive assistants. My first one lasted seven years and my second lasted 17. So I do have longevity with some people and some roles. But with recruiting, I've sort of worked out a few things with recruiting, but I figure for every three that I recruit, two out of three are absolutely correct. And the third one, mm, I could have done better. But that's also another ability to improve the way you do things, you know, the in the hiring and the recruiting side of things. Wasn't it Meatloaf that said two out of three ain't bad? <laughs> yeah, I figure two out of three ain't bad. I get 
I, I think there's a lot of leaders like around, Nina, that would take two out of three. So I think I, I've met a few over the time that are probably none from three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hiring the right people. That's actually why I like interns because actually if they're not the right person, it's a project-based event. They're hired for a certain number of days. And here's, here's the thing. If you get, say, a first or second year uni student, they're doing a four-year program, you can actually, after the 30 days are up, invite them to stay on for longer. And in fact, I did that. I moved my an intern from one day a week to th- three days, become my three-day-a-week's assistant. And that was very, very uh, happy until she graduated and got her corporate role and now she's off and running. So I really find there's a really good talent source in the gap year students and the interns. And I think a lot of businesses don't even think about that. They think they have to get another full-time equivalent person, whereas interns, they're, they're really they would rather not have to work at, you know, a burger joint if they can, you know, something that is a bit, as a knowledge worker, is a, a real plus for them. Yeah, once again, it's a great example. and It's just an example where, you know, leaders and people in business who are hiring people, they need to think a little bit differently, particularly now in the, the day-to-day challenges of, of work, low unemployment, those sorts of things. And people are far more choosy about the sort of work that they do that's kind of linked to their passion or, you know, they're going to feel like they can grow and develop from it. They're just not prepared to take on anything that falls in their lap, are they? Yeah, that's right. Um, in fact, young people today have these portfolio careers and some of them don't even want a full-time corporate corporate role even when they graduate because they've got these side projects, side hustles that actually give them that sense of creativity and progress that perhaps working for an employer may not. I have come across some employers that say, oh, well, if they won't do full-time, I'm not interested. I'm going, yeah, well, you might be losing the cream, you know, because <laughs> sometimes the cream are the creatives and they actually need a day a week for their own projects. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great point. Nina, let's go into, I know you, like you said before, you've mentioned a number through the conversation already. So I'm going to challenge you to think of the fifth. What's the fifth rookie mistake? Oh, gee, I thought I've mentioned a few. (laughs) They're not really in any real chronological order. Oh, okay, here we go. Not building your own capability. Thinking that you know enough, you don't need to read, you don't need to go to workshops. You are you have learned on the job and you know all there is to know. I think that sort of overconfidence has a name. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And the Dunning-Kruger effect says sometimes the people with the least knowledge have the most confidence and that is an error because they're overconfident. Now, of course, overconfidence does mean people can bluster their way through a role and through an organization. But to really have the attributes of an effective team, I actually go back to the Google company again. They, their people lab was very, was very uh, active and they had another project called Project Aristotle where they came up with what were the attributes of, effect, of an effective team. And they very much looked at meeting behavior and this is something that I took on board when I when I came across this research, is that psychological safety and conversational equality were the two attributes of an effective team. Now, with conversational equality, what that means is, is that it's the manager's role is to ensure that everybody expresses their opinion. 
of course you can give them the right to pass because you don't want people to feel forced to give an opinion. But sometimes people sit there quietly. The introverts will often let the fast talkers dominate. And if you invite those that are quiet, you as the manager can observe and say, well, I noticed Jack said this and Tom said that, but Jill, you look like you're you're thinking deeply there. Have you got a thought that you want to add? Sometimes that's all people need to invite them to share their opinion. Sometimes I'm in I'm in groups where, you know, I'm I'm in exalted company and I'm a little bit on the back foot in terms of, oh, do I really want to offer up my opinion here? I'm in a very exalted company. But the minute somebody says, Nina, what do you think? Out it all comes. I've I've been sitting there because th- I'm half introvert. <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't guess. But I am half introvert. And so it all comes out if I'm invited to, if if I feel that I don't feel quite so co- confident in this particular group, but once I'm invited, whatever I've been thinking about will come out. That's quite important for a, an effective team because if a team is about to make a decision that maybe has some unintended consequences, that an introvert not expressing it won't be revealed to the team, it can lead to a huge error. And one Perfect example of that is has got the name of Dieselgate. It's the VW company because back in 2015 they fitted the diesel engines of the, of them of all their um, vehicles in the United States and Europe with a software device that would fool the government emission assessments. And then when it was found out, well, the VW company was fined billions of euros and dollars and. Maybe someone went to jail and they had to get rid of 7,000 staff. And it was the biggest manufacturer of vehicles around the world. They are coming back now with a design for an electric car. They'll be launching it on the market. They'll, they'll come back. But it really was a setback. And what, what the new uh, CEO, Matthias Muller, said, it was really a combination of project managers and engineers not saying what they needed to say. And groupthink got them all involved down a track that really was the wrong track. So that's that's why conversational equality is really important. So that's why I make sure everybody has a say. <laughs> I remember once we did a brainstorm. It took two hours. I, I've learned now to put limits because what I did, I did the, the Brian Tracy thing of putting the numbers one to 20 on the flip chart and say, what are 20 ideas of way we could improve? Well, to come up with 20 took two hours and I went, I'm only going to do 10 next time. (laughs) But it's really good for constant reinvention and constant innovation is to every now and again, I suppose this is another, it's not so much a rookie mistake because I used to do this uh, very much in the beginning anyway. So, but what I do do is for, for, is to harvest the good ideas of my team is to do a little brainstorm and say, how might we improve and then whatever is the process. It might be how might we improve the way we thank customers for, uh, you know, doing a booking. It could be anything. And it may not be that there's a problem to solve. It might be, well, how can we just do better what we're already doing well? So I don't see the, see that as a rookie mistake because that's something I've always done from the start. 
And again, it's uh, just to link it back for our listeners too, for, for those that may not connect, is when you're having those conversations, when you're putting up those challenging questions out there, things come out through those conversations, which actually enables the ability to build capability, which is where you started from. You actually, oh, hey, I know this. Can you help me do this? Or actually, we've got someone who's got a bit of a flavor for this, but we're not quite sure. Okay, how can we build those capabilities? Actually start to create those conversations into how do we make this happen once we've come up with the ideas? Absolutely, Brendan. And these are ideas that big big organizations can uh, take on board. But also if you're if you're a solopreneur, one way to grow is to actually bring your your bring people on board one at a time and to apply all the good lessons of how to manage people. So you actually as you develop the capability of your people, you're developing your own capability as a leader. And that's the important thing because when I I was invited to be a, a chapter president for my association, professional speakers, I had already had practice leading people, so I was able to actually become a good president for my association for the year that I was doing it. So it has side benefits through any role that you have to do, and that goes back to uh, asking you asked before Brendan about does it apply to your own life? Well. If you volunteer in any in any capacity with any group of people, certainly your your leadership uh, skills are going to come out there, and that's a good thing because I like it when there's a group event, even a birthday, where pe- somebody actually takes the floor and says a few words and gives us an all big picture appreciation of the moment. And if people don't step up to the plate to say. I'd like to say a few words and I'd like to invite a few people to say a few words. It doesn't happen, but isn't it warming to the heart when that does happen? So that's something that can play out in your own life, just in your own social events when we're all together for a for a particular event, whether it be someone's graduation or someone's birthday or someone um, achieving some milestone. I like it, Nina. Is there a mistake? I'm going to push you. Is there one of the mistakes that you've mentioned today where you think would have the biggest impact if a leader, a new leader, focused on not making that mistake? What's coming to mind is I worked with a large organization where we did a bit of a brainstorm as part of the productivity training on how they could improve the way they do things. And I got them to all take photos of the flip charts. And then someone came up to me and they and said, Nina, we feel a bit hopeless doing this because we know nothing's going to change because we've got a leader of the of the division who wields disapproval like a sword. I call that a workplace bully. <laughs> but here's the thing. It's important that when people do make mistakes that they're not blamed, they're not criticised, they're not bullied, they're not belittled, that actually use mistakes as a learning opportunity. In fact, the very first book by Michael Gerber called The E-Myth, before he published that really thick sequel called uh, The E-Myth Revisited that was way too thick, the little original one, if you can get it in a secondhand store, the lesson I got from that, and I, that was when I was a solo solopreneur, was always have checklists, procedures, and if someone makes a mistake, it's not because they didn't do a good job. It's because your your procedure or your checklist or your standard operating procedure 
was it was at fault. So what you have to do is find the root cause, put in a, a check and balance, and make sure it doesn't happen again. Because you don't want roles where people are relying on their memory to do the job. Because if they leave with short notice, and it could not because they're upset, just suddenly they're going overseas or they're, they're whatever, you might only have two weeks notice and you've been relying on this person to just do a good job. If it's not written down as a procedure, that's corporate memory that leaves with them. And I've worked with organizations where that's, that has been my observation. They didn't find out what the good person's processes were. And then suddenly someone who was not as capable was trying to pick up the role and it was, it was really quite beyond them. So always have procedures. And this is where I'll often say to people, now, you've been doing this for a while. I just want to have a quick check. Is what you're doing now the same as that procedure that we gave you when you arrived? Oh, no, I found a better way to do it. Well, could you now make this procedure a living, breathing document and just take a, a moment to actually update it? Because I want to always keep the system and checklists valid and uh, current. And if you just let people go off and do their own thing, the corporate memory, memory will uh, will go with the, with them when they leave the leave the role. So, having systems and blaming the system if people have an error and using mistakes to learn from them. Yeah, spot on. Lena, I want to ask my last question. What's helped you you to become a more confident leader? Well, doing the job, having people give me thank you cards when they leave. I sometimes find out that I helped people in ways I had no idea that I did, and I save them all. I've got a little box where I save any thank you card for when someone leaves a role, and I go, isn't that fabulous? I'll always give them a little thank you card as well as if they're moving on to some some other role. So I really rely on the feedback that people give me. So in one-on-ones, that's the opportunity to ask, and how are you finding my interaction with you or just finding the right words to say, am I communicating with you in the way that you'd like me to communicate? If there was a better way for me to communicate with you or to work with you, what would it be? And that's a, a asking a speculative hypothetical question in a way that is safe and invites a response that actually does trigger people to go a little bit deep. If there was one way that we could improve the way uh, you do your role, what would it be? So that speculative, hypothetical question is can be quite powerful. So think about your the art of asking good questions that get to the to the root cause of things, but without making people feel or, or lose face or or feel belittled or or, or, or criticised. So the art of asking good questions. So instead of just coming in full bore and saying this happened and this can't happen again. Go in and say, this happened. Can anyone give me some clues as to why and how it happened? And just really be a Columbo. <laughs> oh, by the way, <laughs> but asking good questions. <laughs> yeah. A couple of phrases come to mind that, that asking good questions really, the phrase that comes to mind is that famous seek to understand, but then also the asking for feedback, you know, as a leader, getting good at asking for feedback, because I actually think that's, that's a game changer because there's so few leaders out there, managers, whatever you want to call them, that are asking for feedback and being deliberate about asking for feedback. So thank you for sharing that. That's a fantastic reminder, fantastic reminder. 
And I am reminded of one other point, Brendan, which is, and I believe that President Reagan, the US President Reagan was very, very good at this. He was very good at assigning credit to other people. When people say, oh, you're, you're a great president at doing this, he say, oh, it wasn't me. It was my, you know, secretary of state or whatever. If you are big enough, generous enough a person to say, it wasn't me, it was my executive assistant. It wasn't me, it was my sales business development executive. If you can really give credit to the other people, you're creating loyal people that probably will thank you because it's like, oh, I'm being acknowledged. And sometimes that's all people want. They just want to be acknowledged. And so if you can do, ah, oh, because these are conversations I have with some of my clients. As I'll, I'll say, oh, do you ever get customer compliments? And then I'll say, and what do you do with it? Oh, well, it goes into a log. I say, well, do you actually have a, at, at the next meeting, make, publicly acknowledge the person and tell them what the actual customer compliment was? Oh, no, we never thought to do that. Honestly, giving people compliments in front of the other members of the team is probably such a big thing to cultivate people staying in their role. I think that's one of the reasons my executive assistants stay each stayed so long is because I I I believe I got good, I got better at acknowledging and complimenting people for the things they did working for me. I, I my my business is a little bit downsized these days, but I I still can use these lessons I learned from a medium-sized business certainly in my um in my the smaller entity that it is now and when I'm working with clients as well. <laughs> exactly. What you shared today is so practical and you know people reflecting on these things and I know I can put my hand up and say, hey, I've made all of those mistakes that you've mentioned today, but I like to think that I'm learning every day and hopefully I'm improving and getting better in all those areas. So now's my time to give you some praise, Nina. Thank you for being such a fantastic guest on our Culture of Leadership podcast. You're such a, just a, a nice person to talk to. You you bring an energy to the conversation. I know I'm so glad our paths crossed a little while back and it's been a while since we've been able to get you on the podcast, but I've been looking forward to our conversation today and you shared probably a hell of a lot more, as you said, than five rookie mistakes. So I'm going to have to unpack this. I might have to change the title post-production. But anyway, I appreciate you and appreciate the time and effort in your preparation for today and, as I said, for being a fantastic guest on the podcast. Oh, Brendan, and likewise, back at you. You, you are your prep for me as a guest was was uh, the best I've ever experienced, and and it shows in terms of your ability to question. You're a great interviewer. Thank you so much. My pleasure. As a rookie leader, I know I made more than my fair share of mistakes. We all make them, and as the saying goes. We learn from our mistakes. Listening to this episode won't stop you making mistakes. It's an important part of your leadership journey. My hope is that this conversation will empower new and aspiring leaders to avoid common mistakes, ultimately maintaining their confidence and unlocking their full potential as confident leaders. These were my three key takeaways from my conversation with Nina. My first key takeaway, confident leaders build capability. They understand the importance of building and nurturing the capabilities of their team members. They invest in training, provide opportunities for growth, and encourage their team to take on new challenges. 
By building capability, they create a strong foundation for their team to succeed and grow together. My second key takeaway, confident leaders explore innovation. They understand that innovation is crucial to staying ahead in today's fast-paced world. They encourage their team to contribute and explore new ideas and take calculated risks. They create an environment that encourages creativity and experimentation, and they're willing to try new things themselves. By exploring innovation, they keep their team and organisation ahead of the curve. My third key takeaway, confident leaders own their self-development. They take responsibility for their own self-development. They seek feedback, reflect on their own strengths and weaknesses, and actively work to improve themselves. They understand that their own growth and development is critical to the success of their team and organisation. By owning their self-development, they lead by example and inspire their team to do the same. So in summary, my three key takeaways were confident leaders build capability, confident leaders explore innovation, and confident leaders own their self-development. What was your key takeaway from the episode? You can let me know at theculturalleadership.com or on YouTube. Thanks for joining me. And remember, the best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation. Thanks for listening to The Culture of Leadership. You can access the show notes at theculturalleadership.com. If you enjoy the show, please follow, rate, and give a review on your favorite podcast platform.